Welcome to the We Earn Media Show, where each episode we talk with a media professional, like an editor or a journalist, deep dive into what makes a great and not so great PR journalist relationship. With me is the co-hostess with the most assist, <laughs> Britt Klotz. Welcome to the show, Britt. Thanks, Jackie. Uh, we're here with Casey Bond at the Huffington Post. She's a freelance writer, and I used to work with her over at Student Loan Hero. What was your title, Casey? I was the managing editor for a long time, and then when I left, I was executive editor. I don't know. Oh, Can't yeah. keep track of all these titles and editorial. <laughs> you basically like built up the content team. So she was brought on to build like this awesome content team, and it grew into something very special. And before that, you were the editor-in-chief at Go Banking Rates. Um, I was. Can you tell us a little bit about anything you did before that or just about your work history, how you got to where you are today? Yeah. I mean, I never thought that I was going to be a personal finance writer slash expert slash whatever you want to call it. Um, When I was in college, I worked for a financial planner at this local firm in Manhattan Beach. And, you know, it was a, it was a chill job, paid well, and, you know, part-time. So it was a good job to have, but I never thought I was going to have any ongoing interest in finance. So I went to college, I studied English, and then I went and got a like graduate degree in publishing. I thought I was going to go work for some publishing house, have this really like glamorous, artsy lifestyle. <laughs> and instead, I started interning for Go Banking Rates, uh, started learning what a certificate of deposit was and stuff like that. Ooh. And I don't know, <laughs> I just like... I started nerding out on it, I guess. And like the combination of the writing about finance with learning about online media and publishing online and all that kind of stuff, I just found really fascinating. So I ran with it. And then I, I, yeah, I eventually grew to be the editor in chief slash content director over there. And then you really ran to join. I really ran with (laughs) it. That's amazing. (laughs) Why did you even do that? Like from like when I joined, it was still a fairly new ish company, a lot smaller than it is today. So there's just a lot of us all wearing a lot of different hats and trying to figure out what the heck we were doing. And so there was a lot of room for me to grow in that sense. And, you know, the leadership there, fortunately, was very trusting in my abilities. So they were willing to give me a shot at some higher level positions there. And it, you know, I guess it all worked out. I hope they would say it worked out. <laughs> I think so. Um, Yeah, so then I joined Student Loan Hero in a similar capacity for a couple of years. And that was an awesome place to work. I'm sure Jackie will agree. And then, uh, you know, I always wanted to write full time as a editorial manager. It was a lot of managerial stuff instead of the actual writing, which is what I ultimately always wanted to do. So when I saw the opportunity for HuffPost come along, I decided I would jump on it. So I'm actually full-time at HuffPost, but I also freelance for other websites too. Yeah, it's awesome. Nice. How long have you been at HuffPost for? I guess it's been like a year and a half now. Cool. Okay. And you work remote. Is there an office there in LA? There is an office. We have an office in Playa Vista. It's gorgeous. They give us tons of free food. So uh, I come in, (laughs) I come in a few days a week to get my free lunch and to say hi to my coworkers. But I also work from home a lot, which is good because I got really used to that whole Mm -hmm. kind of lifestyle of working from home. So it's a great little hybrid. Yeah, that is nice. You have the best of both worlds. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. 
So Casey, who is Patricia Russell? Can you tell us about the Huffington Post story that you chose to talk about today? Yes. So it's a great question. And I wish I knew who Patricia Russell was. Um, I'm still trying to figure that out, really. So yeah, this was a person who was representing herself to the media as a certified financial planner and the owner of this new blog on the scene called Finance Marvel. So the way I initially came in contact with her and the way that a lot of people in the media did was through Haro, uh, Help a Reporter Out, which is you know a service that connects journalists and subject matter experts and helps them get commentary for their stories and stuff like that. So after being contacted by her several times, I realized that she wasn't actually who she said she was. And I have tried to get her on the phone. I've tried to get her to fess up to her real identity. And she kind of just disappeared out into the ether after I busted her. So it could be could be a woman, could be a man, could be a group of people. Uh, I have no idea who they are. Wow. <laughs> So that's considered catfishing, I guess. Yeah, I got financially catfished. I don't know. (laughs) Did you ever cover any of her quotes that she sent you before you discovered that she wasn't real? No, thank God. And I, you know, a lot of outlets did, unfortunately. I feel for them because I can understand how that might happen, even though, you know, as a journalist, it's your job to really dig into sources and make sure who you're talking to is who they say they are. But yeah, she <laughs> she contacted me several times via Haro and, you know, her responses to my queries were always fine, but mm-hmm. I had other experts who were a little bit more, you know, specifically aligned with the topics I was talking about. And so mm-hmm. somebody who's maybe with just kind of a general personal finance blog, I might not prioritize over some other people. Um, But one day I was actually working on this story about the dark web and it wasn't even really a finance story. It was kind of like more of a general story. That's obviously not my area of expertise. And I was kind of struggling to find the right person to talk to about it. And so, you know, I turned to Haro to see what I could get. And Patricia Russell responds back with like some information about the dark web. I'm like, (laughs) who the heck are you to even comment on this? It's so weird. And so I actually turned to our Slack group. We have this Slack group of former student loan hero colleagues that we all stay in touch with. And I was like, hey, guys, like, do you know who this person is? And it turned out a couple of people had heard from her. And one writer, Elizabeth Aldrich, was like, yeah, I was almost going to use her for a story. And then I found out that she didn't have any online presence whatsoever, like didn't have a LinkedIn even. And so I mentioned it to her. And suddenly within the hour, she had a LinkedIn, she had a Twitter account, et cetera, et cetera. And we're just like, okay, so this person is obviously shady. And so I started digging in, I looked her up in the CFP database, they have a database of everybody who's ever been registered as a certified financial planner, wasn't there. And, you know, I I asked her about it. She's like, Oh, well, I just got married, and my name hasn't been changed. And so I asked her for her new name. Yeah, right. And I asked her for her new name and I looked it up and it was clear that she just went and found another Patricia in the CFP database and gave me that person's name because the age, the expertise, like the the work history matched nothing that was in her profile on Finance Marvel. So it was clear that she's totally trying to pull the, you know, the wool over my eyes and everyone else who works in the media. And that's when I started getting in my email battle with her trying to figure out who she actually was. 
That's insane. <laughs> I've always wondered what kind of, I guess, background checks reporters do on people who respond to their Haro queries. Mm-hmm. It seems like people are getting a lot more, like, obviously with, um, with fake news being a thing, <laughs> reporters are getting a lot more savvy when it comes to double checking who's submitting quotes and opinions and whatnot. But what's kind of your go-to? What are the steps that you take to make sure that someone's actually authentic and is the expert that you'd like to source? Yeah, I mean, anybody who presents themselves with any kind of credential, it's really easy to just look up the board for that particular licensing organization Mm -hmm. and see if they actually have it. It's not always the case. I try to steer away from people whose expertise is simply owning a personal blog. That's not to say that many bloggers aren't experts in their fields, but when somebody can come to me with a professional designation or a major organization behind them, it's a Mm -hmm. little more trustworthy in that sense. So that's one easy way to check up on somebody is to just look up their credentials. And then another thing that nobody likes to do, especially me, I have like severe phone anxiety, but pick up the phone and talk to them. That's an easy way to find out if they're an actual person, you know, Uh behind, behind the persona, you can get a sense for how well they're able to talk about their subject matter expertise on the fly um, Mm. versus somebody who maybe like Googled something and just copied and pasted something like that. So it's, it's really not that hard to be honest, to, to vet a source, but I understand in this age of online media, we're all Mm -hmm. competing for eyeballs all the time and it's easy to get a little bit lazy and, you know, you want a quick quote or soundbite. And so you mm-hmm. just kind of grab it from whoever happens to email you something that looks good. That's where you fall into the trap of quoting people who maybe aren't the experts that they claim to be. Yeah. I'm so surprised that you mentioned calling someone, by the way. It <laughs> actually makes me wonder, like, if the next time I ever respond to a, a Haro query, if I should include the number of the expert who I'm, you know, submitting responses on behalf of. Absolutely. Um, cool. I I don't think I've ever done that before, but yeah, that's either. It's a good idea. Good idea. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for other people it might be different, but unless I'm working on something that's super just kind of like a quick brief article on something basic, I usually want to call up the person and talk to them more in depth. You'd be surprised at what kind of information you get from somebody when you're having a natural conversation versus them kind of putting together this really like formal email mm-hmm. or written message to you. Totally. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot less scripted, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. That's cool. Do you use Haro still since this whole incident? Do you use it more? Do you use it less? Honestly, I use it pretty much the same as I did before. You know, I think the service has grown tremendously since it first started. I mean, I've been using it for probably eight or 10 years. And it had already been around when I discovered it and started using it. So I can't fault them too much for the mm-hmm. lack, I guess you could say of a vetting process. I mean, it's a free service. And really, the onus is always on the journalists to vet their sources. And they do have mm-hmm. Haro does institute kind of a basic vetting process for people who want to be sources. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, it's a free service, a ton of people use it. And it's always Mm -hmm. a journalist's job to check up on their sources. So Mm -hmm. I think it's still valuable for finding new experts. You know, I always want to give as many different kinds of voices I can 
to the work that I produce. So it's great for finding new people. After vetting the source, I always run the responses through a plagiarism checker. I've also Ooh. caught fraudsters that way. <laughs> like wow. I was once I was working on a I was working on a story for US News, I think it was, and it was something that had to do with credit scores and housing. I can't remember what the exact topic was, but I put out a horror response just to see who was out there. And the seemingly very cool, like well-known-ish couple, like finance expert couple responded with some good information. I was like, I don't know. I've never worked with these people before. I'm just going to check up on this response. And it turned out they just Googled the topic, grabbed the first article that came up in Google and copied and pasted the article and sent it to me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> God, be kidding me. So I responded back to them, too. I'm like, hey, guys, like, just so you know, people who use this service expect that experts are providing their own words. And if I were to have quoted you, I would have been plagiarizing this website. And of course, they never responded to me. So you got to oh be careful. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. My goodness. That's blows my mind. <laughs> I'm wondering too, like, okay, how many responses do you get for one Haro query? Is that what it's called? Haro query? Yeah, it's a query. Okay. It totally depends on the topic. If it's something basic, like a money saving story or a credit score story, I will get a bajillion responses mm-hmm. varying in quality and, and stuff like that. If it's something very specific, sometimes I have to run it a couple of times before I can find somebody who's okay. legit or even cares to respond. Interesting. And do you have, we were talking about this a little bit on the episode with Noah. Do you have kind of like a contact list that you reference? I do. From time to time? Uh, Yeah. When I'm working on articles and I come away with somebody who I thought was a really great source and really helped me out, I'll add them to this little Google spreadsheet that I have of people that I know I can rely on. So I definitely tap that all the time, but you know, I don't want to keep producing articles with the same experts Mm -hmm. quoted every single time, which is where Mm -hmm. Haro comes in. Yeah. That takes a lot of organization. (laughs) It does. And it's definitely not completely up to date. (laughs) Yeah. That's crazy. I'm still kind of just totally stunned that somebody plagiarized like that. Anyways, sorry. I'm a little bit distracted now. (laughs) That's kind of mind-boggling. It is. And frustrating. Unfortunately, it's happening all the time. You published a follow-up story where you uncovered more financial frauds. Um, Oh, my gosh. Yes. And and what, didn't Patricia, like, rat them out? This is... (laughs) Guys, I wish I was creative enough to even make this kind of stuff up, but I can't. So Patricia actually tipped me off to these other people. Uh, She was doing (laughs) one of those classic, like, don't look at me, look over there at that other bad thing that's happening. So when I was, you know, when I was accusing her of using her CFP credential fraudulently, she was like, well, there's this other blog that I follow And I looked them up in the CFP database and there's no one by those names in there. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Let's deal with you first. But I eventually did. I I went to my editor and I was like, hey, like, I think I have another Patricia Russell situation going on. She's like, cool, (laughs) write another story about it. So yeah, this this company Enthrive, I think their website is still live too, but they took down all of the expert profiles. And so there's no more names associated with the website. It's just this kind of like blanket organization. But yeah, so there are several experts listed on Enthrive. 
who, once I started digging into their backgrounds, I realized they were completely made up personas. Oh my God. So crazy. And think about all the people who have not been uncovered and maybe silently stopped answering so many heroes since like your story. I hope that's the case. Cause yeah, I, I can so. only, I can only imagine how many fakers there are out there. A lot. <laughs> um, I kind of wanted to tap into the reason why a lot of fakers do exist. In that follow-up story, you talked about how some people were even questioning why it's a big deal because the information is correct, but it's dangerous on a lot of different levels, specifically from our world, um, not to bash Student Loan Hero because we did good work, but a lot of the strategy behind our PR and why we even were so aggressive with our efforts was for SEO reasons. Right. And I'm wondering, do you think, maybe talk about a little bit about how maybe Google has changed the way that media is, I don't know, I don't know what I'm asking. (laughs) But do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like SEO almost like, has the ability to maybe ruin the, like the purpose of mass media to begin with, and like why we write and share certain stories, like are shaped now by money. Well, that's the thing. Like the internet has really changed the way we consume information. And it's also changed how people are compensated and made it a lot more difficult to actually figure out how people are compensated, whether that's a website owner or an expert, whoever it is. So, I mean, like in the case of these fake financial experts, sure, they can go ahead and Google information about a certain topic and provide commentary to some website and their expertise may not necessarily be wrong. I mean, one point is that when somebody does that, they're not adding anything new or particularly mm-hmm. eye-opening to the story, which is just lazy journalism. Whenever you call on an expert, it's because they're supposed to be providing something to you that you can't figure out yourself or find easily, right? They're the expert. So when they're just copying, right. pasting general information, who cares? But really, I mean, going back to this concept of online news and advice, I mean, one of the ways that websites gain visibility in search engines like Google is by proving that they're legitimate experts. So, you know, when somebody is quoted and then their website is linked to by other authoritative outlets like MarketWatch or MSN or HuffPost, it's -hmm. telling Google that this person and their website are, in fact, legitimate. So when, you know... Joe Schmo gets online and starts Googling a particular question, like maybe how do I fix my credit? And then lo and behold, there's this fly-by-night website, Finance Marvel or MThrive, that's the very first or maybe in the top of the search results, at least. And so they click it, they read a couple articles, and eventually they click through to one of their advertisers. Maybe it's like a credit repair company. Um, That's what both Finance Marvel and MThrive were promoting was credit repair. So, you know, they don't know if this website or this advertiser that they choose to pay money to help them with their finances is really a legitimate business or the best option for them. But according to Google and according to the media, they're the experts in the field. So how is the average person supposed to know who to trust if it's not through the media that they're relying on and the search Mm -hmm. engine results that they're being provided? And then You know, I also think it's just kind of insulting to the people who have worked really hard to earn these credentials like a CFP, and they truly have their client's best interest at heart. And then somebody just comes along and says, oh, yeah, I have that too. And then they gain all of this trust and authority and this kind of implied 
ethical side of things that they didn't actually work to get. So that's just, if I were a CFP, I'd be really pissed off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. You know, on the topic of, let's say there is a fly by night website and let's just use an example that you and I are familiar with. Let's say they do push student loan refinancing. So very like common product. And let's say they just do not have an in-house expert to give hope to the PR people who might be working with more difficult clients <laughs> or in-house at difficult companies are difficult to promote. Right. Do you welcome data studies or any sort of thing like that? Like, is that a good way to connect with you? Or what are other ways that PR people can work with you if they don't necessarily have an expert? Or do, do you need an expert? I mean, I need, <laughs> I do need an expert. But yeah. that can mean different things depending on what the subject is, what we're talking about. You know, like you you mm-hmm. mentioned studies. I definitely appreciate studies and I have quoted data from studies that maybe didn't come from huge websites or, um, you know, came from websites that are in financial services. As long as the methodology is legitimate, like either use use like a professional third-party polling system. I tend not to use data that was only based on users for that particular service. So let's say you're one of these like student loan refinancing kind of aggregate sites and you have a database of users. I'm less prone to cite data that came from only those users versus it was, you know, a YouGov poll of 1,500 mm-hmm. internet users, something like that. So as long as the sample size is big enough the users were broad enough and the questions made sense and weren't leading and we're not promoting a product, um, Mm -hmm. then I'm perfectly happy to take a look at that data. What's the typical sample size when you say big enough? Like how many would you consider? I would say at least a thousand, but the bigger the claim we're making, the more people I would want in that, in that survey or study. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of, contextual it kind of just depends on what the subject is obviously the bigger the sample size the better but if you were like oh yeah I talked to 20 people at the college down the street and this is what they said I'm <laughs> yeah, probably yeah. <laughs> not going to use it yeah that makes sense completely <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm imagining too it also at least for me when I try to think of ideas that are around this kind of thing it's always about to if we're trying to get into get results from a particular demographic of people, obviously that makes the survey has to be a little bit bigger than just 1,500 people. So yeah, like you said, it just depends on the questions as well. Right. Do you actually ask for the list of questions that were asked in the survey too? Usually. I'll usually ask to see just the raw data uh, of, of whatever they did and then kind of pick from there. It helps, yeah, if the PR person can pick out a few key points from the data, that Mm -hmm. is really helpful for me. But I always like to see the full data set before I decide what to do with it. Awesome. Yeah, you really do your homework. I love that. (laughs) Because I'm going to get in big trouble with readers and my boss (laughs) if I don't. (laughs) That's understandable. I appreciate that. That's why like we put so much hard work into these stories these days, you know? So yeah. Yeah. I hope more websites get a little more rigorous. I know a lot of, I mean, like for instance, when the fake student loan expert from LendyDU came out, CNBC reported on it. And then I kid you not, like literally two hours later, another reporter there had posted a survey that they had like done. So it's kind of like, do you know what I mean? Like they just didn't even. Some people have no shame. 
Um, no shame. <laughs> I will say with the whole Patricia Russell finance Marvel thing too, you can also tell the integrity of some of these publications by how they handled it once they found out that they had erroneously quoted mm-hmm. this person. Mm-hmm. So most websites took her stuff out, but then issued a statement at the bottom of the article saying, you know, like this article previously quoted so-and-so who was found to, you know, not be, not have the credentials that they said has been removed. Some websites, I guess I won't say who, because if you go to my article and click the links, you can figure out who. Um, (laughs) Some websites just deleted all mention of her and never issued any kind of statement or correction. They're just like, pretend like it never happened. So you can only imagine what other kind of mistakes have been covered up or just kind of you can tell who really follows journalistic best practices and who doesn't. So that's all I'll say about yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I noticed some people too left it in there and maybe just removed the link to the site. Oh boy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy. Yeah. It's like, I guess it doesn't count if, if there's no link, but I guess really. in their mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, still see, not like, a real person. But <laughs> yeah. God, that's so insane. Yeah. Um, so best practices while we're talking about it and kind sure. of the, Summarize so far, sounds like when someone's responding to a hero, they should include their credentials, have a response that is more in-depth than something that you just randomly Googled, mm-hmm. not have it plagiarized, include a phone number so that you yes. can call. Data's welcome, but make sure that it's legit, not just, I don't know, slapped together. Um, right. And we kind of talked about that. Uh, nationally representative surveys are good. What else? Um, oh, you keep a spreadsheet of sources. And so so you go to some of the same sources regularly, but you don't like to use the same source all the time because right. you like to have a little variety. Right, right. Cool. What are some best practices or maybe some tips that you that help the subject line stand out to you, Casey? Because that's a lot of responses for some of your queries. It sure is. I mean, I when it comes to Haro, I read every single response. But I will say for both the Haro responses and just pitching in general, the subject line is so important. I get hundreds of emails every single day of pitches and the subject lines that are really vague, I usually don't even open them. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it's like, hey, Casey, question for you or something like that. If I don't know (laughs) who it's coming from, I'll be like, goodbye. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I think the most important thing that you can do is put whatever the hook of the story is or that one really interesting data point or that one tidbit that you think is the super interesting angle of the story, make Mm -hmm. that the subject line. So when I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, what is that? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't need to know that you have an expert available for me. I don't need to know that you have a question. Just Mm -hmm. put my story in bold lettering in my email and I will open it, you know, and then as far as like the body goes, just give me a few, a few details about what it is you're pitching for the expert. I mean, give me a couple sentences. I've had people whose the bio of their expert is like 10 times longer than the response to the query. (laughs) I don't need their biography. I just need to know who the heck they are and maybe link to a couple pages online that have their credentials listed. And then like we were discussing, provide a phone number and offer to schedule a phone interview if necessary. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of like a you know, it's a balance between putting out some interesting new information that I might want to quote or dig into more and then offering the opportunity to talk more about it in depth. 
But yeah, the subject line is super key. Like just put the most interesting thing that you have to say right there. Okay. I like that. (laughs) And as far as Haro goes, what other maybe tools or social media outlets maybe do you use to find sources? Interestingly, I use Reddit every now and then. Really? That's especially, I guess that's more for when I want personal stories from people. Like one of my beats has become multi-level marketing. Uh, I've been writing a lot about MLM companies. So I turn to Reddit all the time to find people who have been burned by MLMs or have stuff to say about them. Um, Twitter. Yeah. If I, you know, if I, oh my God, don't even get me started on MLMs because I'm going to get like really worked up and not oh stop God. talking about it. So <laughs> next time. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, you should do something completely unrelated to this podcast. <laughs> obviously. Yeah, you should do it. <laughs> um but yeah, I'll I'll use Twitter if I can't track someone down. It's a little bit of a red flag if I'm not easily able to track them down via more traditional methods, but I will right. try to find people on Twitter if necessary. That's cool. Do you yeah, ever use really- LinkedIn or anything? Oh yeah. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's, I, I forget about LinkedIn. Good old LinkedIn's always there for help too. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah. 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 With Reddit, going back to Reddit real fast, I only frequent Reddit when I'm really desperate when it comes to like ideation. Otherwise, sometimes I feel like I get bogged down by the trolls. But <laughs> when it comes to Reddit, though, I've never reached out to anybody through that platform or not through it, but I've never tried to reach out to anybody that I found on there. And usually, isn't it like a really random like username? How do you find their in- contact information? I just have to cold message them through oh, Reddit. And so it's really hit or miss. Some people ignore me. A lot of mm. people ignore me, actually. But some people are really excited to help with certain stories. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not an easy way. And, you know, I don't really understand. I'm not... Guys, I'm not that internet savvy. Like, I don't understand how the karma points and all that kind of stuff really works with Reddit. Uh, but I know that according to my karma points, I'm not very cool compared to other Reddit users. So, like, I don't think my stuff gets as much visibility. But the more you use it, the more trustworthy you become on the platform. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay, cool. So, basically, let's work on our karma. So, A, yes. we can maybe get reached out to by a reporter. and also in case we ever have to contact anybody they're more likely to listen to us right right so yeah I think just um, like an hour every day to go on reddit no problem (laughs) yeah yeah, just add that to your list why not (laughs) seems worth it so questions I have about you because I've pitched you in the past Um, we haven't worked together yet I don't think but it's gonna happen one day it's gonna happen I feel it (laughs) yes I feel it um Two questions I've had about you. I'm on the East Coast. You're on the West Coast. Something that runs through my mind is like, if I send you an email at 8 a.m. my time, is it going to be buried under a billion other emails that other people on the East Coast messaged you way too early? Like, how do you deal with your inbox first thing in the morning? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I'm not generally working on breaking news stuff. So I'm not too worried about timing and getting to emails immediately. But that is the first thing I do when I start work at like 8 or 9am my time, I will just go through all of my email from the previous night. So again, like if I see subject lines that don't interest me or are boring, then I'll probably just immediately (laughs) delete them. I get pitched a lot of a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with what I write about. 
uh, get pitched a lot of products and stuff like that. So there's like a very big mass delete that happens. And then I'll go through and kind of open up stuff that looks like it could be potentially interesting. And then, you know, I'll check, I'll check throughout the day. I have my email open all day and I'm checking it throughout the day. So to all the people who like to email me every few hours for several days in a row, <laughs> I've seen your email. <laughs> I, just, I can't respond to every single person that emails me. Otherwise, my whole job would be emailing people and it wouldn't be writing anything. So I do check my email often throughout the day. Okay, great. And how many, how many follow-ups is appropriate? One or none or more than that? <laughs> I would say one to two. Let me give you an example of what not to do. So I put out, <laughs> I put out a, a Haro query on some random financial topic. It, what it was doesn't really matter. This person, I think she or he or she was a very eager newbie in the PR game because they emailed me a response to my, my personal email address, which is where all of my Haro queries automatically filter to. They decided to also respond to my HuffPost address which some people do, which kind of annoys me because then I'm just getting double emailed. Then they decided to follow up within a couple of hours to both email addresses. And then they decided to follow up again within a few hours of that to both email addresses. So I ended up getting six emails from this person in less than 12 hours. And at that point, I did not care what they were pitching me. They became the most annoying person on the planet to me. And I just was like, no, delete, delete, delete. So don't do that. Okay. Noted. I don't think I've ever done that, but I know that if I know a reporter personally on Harrow, sometimes I'm tempted to email them separate from the platform. Do you prefer to just keep all your Harrow emails together or like yeah, if I know it might, you? It might be different for other people, but I prefer to just let them filter into my personal email address where I have it set okay. because Haro mm-hmm. collects all the responses where I can log in and look at them at any time. And then I also review them when they come in through email. So sending them off to another email address is just kind of adding to all of the clutter that I have to go through. Right. But yeah, following up is fine. Sometimes I'll look at something. I'll be like, oh, that's interesting. And I'll save it for later, but maybe not respond yet. And then if you follow up like a few days later, maybe that is something that I talked to my editor about, or I'm ready to pitch my editor some new stories. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, let's talk more about that. So just because I haven't responded doesn't mean I'm necessarily not interested. It just might have not been a good time for me to pursue it. So a follow-up is fine, but multiple emails to multiple addresses is something that really bugs me. And how often are you um, pitching your editor's story ideas? Like weekly or... We have a weekly meeting where we talk about ideas. Um, our whole lifestyle department does brainstorms. So like our wellness team, our relationships team, we all do brainstorms where everyone participates. So there's you know one of those every couple of weeks. And then if I just have random idea or I got an email that I think is really interesting, I'll just forward it over to my editor and we might just add it to the schedule on the fly. Cool. Do you ever check your spam folder? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now I feel like I should probably check more often because not really. Okay. No, I'm, I'm legitimately curious. In the Noah episode, we asked the same thing and he basically said the exact same thing. Oh, every once in a while he might look at it and he's noticed like he has had people that he's worked with end up in the spam folder. So he said it, it could happen that a good pitch might end up in there, but. Oh boy. I'm going to check. As soon as we get done talking. Yeah, hot tip. You might have a good story in there. Oh, wow. Yeah. On the topic of following up, how do you feel about phone calls? Like I said, 
I am phone averse. So <laughs> I usually, I usually don't pick up my phone if I don't recognize the number, but if you leave a voicemail and I'm interested, I'll definitely call back. Okay. Do a lot of PR people call you and pitch you via voicemail? Not too often. Most people stick to email. I did. Um, I worked with, you know, the guy, Bobby Burke from Queer Eye. Yes. yes, and you interviewed him. Yeah, so I was going to say, he's so cool. The, well, it wasn't his PR person. He was doing some deal with Adobe, and their PR person was kind of coordinating the interview and stuff. And she actually asked for my number and just kind of texted me as far as, like, scheduling updates and stuff like that. Okay. And then when she had another idea for me, she texted me, which was, that was fine with me. Obviously she was able to cut through a lot of noise that way. Not that I'm saying that everybody should start texting me. But, um, Don't I worry. Do, I, yeah. I, I'll, I won't I'll text my phone too. You can text me, Jack. Thank you. Although, I don't know. I don't know that like, I don't know that I have anything that's so exciting that I would need to text you. I'd feel a little weird about it. I think all what I'll do is I'll email you. And then maybe if I'm like, if I don't hear from you, I'll just text you and be like, yo, just that in case, works. don't forget. Yeah. <laughs> Only you, Jackie, though. Don't let anyone else. Jackie and Bobby <laughs> Burke. Yeah, Jackie <laughs> and Bobby Burke are the only people who can text me. Yes. <laughs> you can start. I have the same list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do? That's great. No. Just Jackie, Bobby Burke, and my mom. That's it. <laughs> oh, and your mom? Oh, that's no. sweet. <laughs> oh, that's oh. great. Um, so, like, what percentage of your story ideas, if at all, come from PR pitches? I don't yeah. know if there's an exact figure, but <laughs> I would guess probably five to 10% of my story ideas come from PR. It's not a huge amount, but it's just that a lot of our stories are either SEO driven because the department that I work for is called Life 101. That's what we kind of call it internally. So I cover a lot of like adulting topics, questions mm-hmm. that people are asking about money and stuff around their home. So a lot of what we do is search driven and we have a team that kind of filters up different questions that we might need to answer. And then, you know, real life topics that are happening in the news. Sometimes we'll take a news story and spin it to a more evergreen type of story. And then, like I said, we do a lot of brainstorms. So our actual newsroom, people come up with topics too. So there's a lot of different ways we're coming up with ideas and PR is just one of them. So I would say, yeah, maybe like 10% of the stories come from pitches. That's cool. And then if somebody does want to pitch you a story idea, let's say, I don't know. I mean, they have a lot of strikes against them. If they don't have an expert and they don't have any data to work with, what a listicle, let's say they come up with a list of tips. Is that enough to really like draw you in or do you need more than that? To be honest, it's probably not enough. I mean, okay. think about it this way. I've been writing about money for 10 years now. So yeah. I'm constantly struggling to think of something new. And if you send me something like 10 ways to save money, yeah. it's, just, it's mm-hmm. just not going to get me Sorry. excited. I'm sorry, you know? Exactly. Uh, it's, that makes sense. Obviously, like, we're always talking about the same kind of stuff. Like, the the, the general concepts don't change, but it's always nice to have a new spin or a new yeah. take on something that's out there. So that's, what's really important to me is just something fresh and new that I can share with readers that will somehow benefit their lives. It's very service oriented. So if it's something that's going to help people, that's not something that they've heard a thousand times, that's what I'm looking for. Okay. That's very good. Mm-hmm. 
But what came to my mind, and I, I absolutely like, this is one of my biggest pet peeves, is when a client wants me to get coverage for a guide that they've created. Mm. And it's always really a difficult conversation to go back to them and say something along the lines of, this is a great content piece for you to have on your website, but it's not PRable. Yeah. So um, I love when that it comes word. to, <laughs> or it's not media worthy. Yeah. When it comes to guides, A, do you get pitched those a lot? And B, do you have any recommendations for how maybe people can one-up their guides and make it more appealing to something you would possibly cover? Or is that just a, you know, you look at a off guide and table. you say, okay, yeah, off the table, move on. Think of something else. Yeah. I mean, every now and then <laughs> I'll get these emails that'll be like, oh, I saw you recently wrote about this and linked to this website. Well, oh, no. I have a better page on my website. Would you considering linking to me instead? Mm-hmm. And no, like that's, <laughs> that drives me nuts. Um, but I will say that when I'm writing, I will link to third-party websites just for informational purposes. So if there's a topic that we haven't covered a lot on HuffPost, and I think it's important for readers to have an ability to click through and learn more about something, I will link to it. So for instance, on Student Loan Hero, we had this really comprehensive directory of student loan forgiveness programs. And so when I wrote about student loan forgiveness, I definitely linked off to that directory because I thought it was really helpful and it was something that I wouldn't be able to recreate for Mm -hmm. HuffPost. So I think if the guide is something that's truly comprehensive, has something that's a little bit different from competitors, for instance, it being like in a directory format or maybe just organized in a way that's really helpful, that's really well designed, there might be a scenario in which I would want to reference it in a longer piece about that topic. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I've read something about how a guide might be naturally linked to by a reporter such as mm-hmm. yourself, if it's ranking organically for certain keywords. So that's, that makes tons of sense, right? So say, sure. say you're Googling around the topic, the topic of like bad credit, this guy mm-hmm. pops up, and it's all about how to improve your credit score. If it has any of those characteristics that you just mentioned, you may be enticed to link to it. And also maybe it's something you just came across because you Googled it. Sure. Yeah. And if I have a good relationship with somebody, like a someone in PR, and I've worked with them on different stories on the same topic, they may mm-hmm. come to mind when I'm like, oh, I could really use some more information about this. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that... Brit had worked with a client who was an expert on this. Let me just check out their site and see if they have anything. Oh, okay. Um, you know, obviously I'm speaking hypothetically here, but yeah. that is definitely something that I'd rather go to somebody that I know is a legit expert than just Googling and trying to pick something that I think looks, yeah. looks good, you know? That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, cool. I love asking those kind of questions because it gives us some leverage when we're trying to sure. have reasons for why maybe we should think of other content ideas besides guides for I our would, clients. I, I would definitely encourage a different strategy than the guides. Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> we're just collecting these responses and throwing them out there when they come up. Yeah. Cool. So That was a good question. Um, 
you mentioned having, if you have a good relationship with someone, you'll go back to them or kind of Mm -hmm. go through their site. How do you define a good working relationship? Do you have certain PR people that you tend to work with regularly for whatever reason? And then what do they do that sets them apart from other PR people that you've worked with in the past? Yeah, I, you know, there's a couple of people that I've worked with over the years who they know that balance between pitching, but also not being too pushy. The experts that they represent are really strong. They really know their stuff. Like for an example, and (laughs) I know Jackie that you work with them, I think a little bit. So this is not me just trying to suck up, but um, the team, (laughs) no worries. The team over with Leslie Tain, the she's a a bankruptcy and debt expert. She's amazing. She does a really great phone interview. She knows how to speak and give like really clear and quotable information. But then everyone who works on her PR team is also really awesome. Very responsive. If I need something turned around really quickly, like if I'm, you know, on a tight deadline and I realize that I don't have information that I need, I can email you or, um, what's your name? Leah, Leah Rosa. Rosa. Yeah. She's awesome. And even if we're doing like an email interview, I know that the responses are going to be really thoughtful and provide something valuable. It's not going to be just like a canned response or, you know, God forbid some copy and paste from Google. So it's someone like that who can, you have to really learn how to anticipate somebody's needs and really go above and beyond in terms of turnaround and the quality of what you give back. You know, I've worked with other PR people in the past where they offer me an expert and then I say, okay, I need to have an interview by this deadline. And they're like, oh, well, they're busy until next week. Would that work? And unfortunately, you know, no. it doesn't. And then I'm less, I'm less inclined to, to prioritize them in the future. So the time thing, even though I said, you know, I'm not usually working on any kind of breaking news, but my turnarounds are pretty quick. You know, I can't sit on a story for a week or two when we're trying to have constantly, you know, fresh stories on the site and stuff like that. So timeliness is huge. And then having a really good expert is also super helpful. And just kind of understanding what kind of stories I write, what kind of stories would be appropriate for that person, and maybe kind of holding off when something is a stretch or when it wouldn't be appropriate to pitch that person. So what is typical turnaround time between needing to write the story and interview source and all that? I usually have a couple of days. It's rare when I need to talk to somebody the same day, although that does happen. And if somebody can help me secure an interview within a few hours, that's always amazing. But I try not to have stuff happening that, you know, last minute. Yeah. Casey, do you have a deadline or kind of like multiple deadlines that you need to meet throughout the day? Or what's your publishing cadence like? Yeah, um, usually I just have daily deadlines, like some stories I'll work on for a day or two. I have other stories that I'll be working on more long form pieces in the background. So there's really no hard and fast deadlines for the work I do. If I were to go to my editor and say, Hey, I have this really amazing person that I want to talk to. They're not going to be available till tomorrow. Can I Mm -hmm. hold the story until then? They're going to likely say yes. But if I'm like, uh, you know, I'm not feeling this story. Can I put it on the back burner for another three days until I get some better information? I I can't keep doing that. So, you know, I try to stick to my deadlines as as well as possible unless something really important comes up. 
that would yeah. really add value to the story and I need to hold off for a couple of days. But really, yeah, I'm just, I just have, you know, daily deadlines. It's not too crazy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes sense. And that's nice. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's so nice to have the flexibility. <laughs> yeah. I had like a random question about, <laughs> this is something that I see a lot of people get frustrated by and I totally agree. But so, and Jackie, I think you mentioned it earlier as well. So do you prefer people to pitch you at your Huffington Post email or how do you feel about like people reaching out to your personal or through DM on Twitter or LinkedIn? Like Facebook or random places. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's a good question. And this is probably going to vary depending on the person, but um, so it's a little different for me because I'm a full-time reporter for HuffPost and I also do a bit of freelancing on the side and I want to keep those two things very separate from each other. So obviously if I'm working on a freelance story, that's going to be on outside hours, uh, mm-hmm. from HuffPost and I'm not going to take interviews or work on the story when I'm working on HuffPost stuff. So I try to separate my work using my two email addresses where if I'm working on a HuffPost story, I try to coordinate all my pitches and interviews and stuff through the HuffPost email. And then if I'm working on something for another website, I'll go through my personal email. So that's why it bugs me when people double pitch me. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it just like gets it a little bit disorganized. Obviously, like this is my personal organization preference. So I can't expect everyone to read my mind. But if somebody's pitching me a HuffPost story, please don't pitch it to my personal email address. Just pitch it to my HuffPost emails. What I can mm-hmm. say on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, cool. I totally pitched your Gmail. I won't do that again. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask a question. Thank you. Don't let it happen again, though. (laughs) (laughs) I will. No, that's a a good question because I don't know. I've often wondered that, too. Sometimes I can't find the work email, but I found their Gmail somehow. And then, you know, I kind of do that. But I try not to because I know that's not really totally appropriate because, you know, personal and work life and Especially for you, if you've got freelance work, you don't want to mix them up. Um, You said that you talked about deleting emails. Are you an inbox zero person? Like, is that what you try to aspire to do? I try to be. I'm guilty of of using my email as like a reminder. Like I'll leave stuff on unread when I know I want to come back to it at some point. But I try, I I hate seeing lots of stuff in my emails. Yeah. It seems like a lot. Um, my Im- I'm at inbox 1,919. Okay, that stresses me out so bad. <laughs> I can't I believe like it. PR people are probably the opposite. Like, I just don't delete any of my emails because sometimes I need to reference old pitches or, like, try to remember sure. who I work with. What about you, Britt? Do you delete, like, pitches once you're done working um, with someone? I definitely have them as read, but they're still in my inbox for sure. Um my yeah. personal email, I have around 10,000 unread. Nice. And <laughs> my work email, I have six unread at the moment. So I'm wow. honestly trying to just improve, you know, myself every single day. I don't know. I'm somewhere in between. <laughs> you know, it's like ta- talking with Noah yesterday and even talking with you today, like I was thinking about technology and I feel like nothing's really changed for us. A majority of our days spent in the email inbox and like, I don't know, I don't really use any apps to like organize in any way. I know they exist, but I just kind of, I'm old school and it sounds like you're probably old school too, Casey. Like you just read emails and manually 
delete them or sort them, right? For sure. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't delete emails between like people that I know or right. potentially want to work with. But when I get super irrelevant pitches for no weird products them. and yeah. I get this one this one person who pitches me very regularly about different topics about vaginas like every day almost like (laughs) just like I'm like never I'm not a health or wellness reporter I don't know why you keep pitching (laughs) me on these very specific vagina topics but like those usually just well I save some of them because some of them are really funny but stuff like that yeah I'll delete it (laughs) Do do you ever block like PR people no no I never block anybody that's cool that's good <laughs> awesome I just have one more question about relationship building and you've mentioned you know some of your best relationships are from PRs who are super responsive and they're very helpful and all of that jazz but are there any other ways that you would recommend PRs to build relationships that aren't necessarily work related you know like whether it's meeting in person with with a PR person or taking the time to get together over coffee or maybe having like another way that PRs build relationships with the reporters sometimes can be sending along story ideas that aren't necessarily beneficial for their clients, Mm. but they think that it'd be a really good topic. Are there any instances like that that stand out to you and, and you personally appreciate? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Every now and then I do get invitations to go grab coffee or meet up somewhere. And to be honest, I don't have a ton of time. And I'm wary of just being sold, like taking time out of my day to be Mm -hmm. sold on something. So I am hesitant to accept that sort of thing. I think the, the best way Honestly, and I remember, you know, from years ago, the best relationships that I've had with PR professionals are ones where we keep an ongoing conversation, even if we're not always talking about the work at hand, like sometimes just checking in be like, oh, hey, like this weekend, I was thinking about this conversation we had and something funny happened. Haha, just kind of like a quick, you know, just like a, a friendly chatty email. Not that that should be happening all the time, but just kind of maintaining more of a human relationship instead of, I have something for you that I want you to take. Will you? Mm -hmm. Yes or no? You know, this like very like, I guess kind of, I don't know what you would call it. Transactional relationship. Yeah, exactly. So people who are a little bit more conversational and human always stick out in my mind, even if I'm not willing to go get coffee with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes too, even like taking it outside of the, inbox I found that to be really a lot more natural even or just a great way to keep in touch with reporters that I work with and journalists Mm -hmm. that I work with is like you know following them on Twitter and maybe even Instagram if that relationship makes sense definitely (laughs) yeah yeah that's a really good point we don't always have time to meet up (laughs) for coffee and like you said I remember like because I went to school for journalism and one of the biggest things that one of my professors talked about or biggest no-nos you could say was about bribery and not accepting gifts or even meals from people who I am now PRs and people who might be reading stories about but (laughs) so I always am curious about where the line blurs there so right that is another thing that I have to be careful about is accepting, yeah, like you said, like gifts or payment mm-hmm. for anything. If anything could ever be construed in a way that 
that occurred, then it could really hurt our credibility at HuffPost yeah. and mine personally. So it is something that I'm wary of. Yeah, yeah that makes, makes sense. sense. When um, we met with reporters in New York when I was the student loan hero, I did notice that quite a few reporters, when we went out with for coffee, they made a point to buy their coffee separate. And, yeah. You know, that was mm-hmm. a big deal. So that makes sense. Um, God, I had a related question to that. And now I don't remember what it was. Oh, well, um, <laughs> probably related to... Um, oh, you know, one thing, Twitter, do you have PR people connected with you on Twitter? And have you liked it? I only ask because I struggle with it. And I've been told like, you got to get into Twitter and connect with reporters. But sometimes it just feels disingenuine. Like, sometimes I just don't know what to tweet at someone like, I don't know. Yeah, it just feels I, I am connected with a few people on Twitter, but I'm not a big Twitter user in general. Mm-hmm. And I do every now and then get pitches in my um like my dms and I look at them I haven't come across one that I found was particularly compelling but it's I will connect with PR people on Twitter and I have used Twitter to find sources in the past so um yeah so I would definitely encourage at least adding people on Twitter Mm -hmm. I don't know if cold pitching via Twitter is the best option at least not for me and maybe some other reporters prefer that um yeah I mean I wouldn't force like a weird (laughs) tweet to somebody just to like (laughs) try to be Twitter friends but connecting at least in case they do tweet about needing a source for something or yeah you you never know cast a wide net I guess right yeah (laughs) (laughs) do you have any other questions Britt no, everything, everything that we went over and all of your answers were so insightful and, yeah, and really useful. So thank you so much, Casey. Yeah, thanks for I having love this conversation. This was, this was a really fun convo. Yay. Yeah, Glad you I love, so. I love that I get to air all of my grievances about <laughs> pitching. <laughs> yeah, we should like call it therapy for journalists. It is. <laughs> it totally is. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Casey. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Earn Media. If you head over to weearnmedia.com, you'll find a summary of the episode along with links to any of the resources and more information about our lovely guest and where you can find them online. If you have any topic suggestions or just general PR questions for us or future guests, email us at podcast at weearnmedia.com. Of course, you can also find us on social media. Our handle is at weearnmedia and we're on Twitter and Instagram. 